Well, good morning, CCSC. Thanks for having me. It's always a, a pleasure to uh, worship with you all here today. Thanks to Pastor Dan. We've known each other, as he said, for uh, well over a decade, but I don't know what he's talking about. I studied hard in seminary. <laughs> but in fact, actually, we played a lot of ping pong in, in seminary, just kind of not studying as much as we could, so we could... We should actually be really good at ping pong because of the number of hours we spent playing in the basement of Westminster, Philly. But by God's grace, we are both pastoring churches in Orange County, and we are trying to lead people uh, to Jesus. And CCSC is a, a church that I've had the privilege of being able to uh, preach and to worship with. It's a church that I could honestly say is not just a church that I like, but genuinely it's a church that I admire. And so I'm so thankful to worship with you all here today and allow me to preach God's word. Uh, let me get right into this. We're going to take a look at somewhat of an obscure passage. It's just a list of a bunch of names. They call this a genealogy. We can think of it like a family tree. And part of the heart behind this was because I had the privilege of participating in CCSC's recent conference on shepherding. And part of shepherding makes me think about how the church is an intimate and deep family of God. And what we have here in the genealogy is a picture-perfect understanding of the grace of Jesus that makes you and I broken and sinful with all our difficulties and our skeletons in the closet and our vulnerabilities and our brokenness coming together in Jesus Christ, united in perfection as a family. So I want to consider that with you here today. So if you have your Bibles, or go ahead and look up on the screen, I'll be reading from Genesis chapter 46, verses 8 to verse 27. I'll sort of hop around the entire chapter, but for time's sake, I'm just going to read the names for us here today. So this is God's word, verse 8. Now the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob was firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Er, Onan, Shalad, Perez, and Zerah. But Aaron, Onan, died in the land of Canaan, and the sons of Perez, and Hezron, and Hamul, the sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yob, and Shimron, the sons of Zebulun, Zered, Sered, Elon, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Padan Aram, together with his daughter Dina. Altogether, his sons and daughters number 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Eridine, Erelai, the sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, with, their, with Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. Verse 19, the sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin, and to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becker, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Muppin, Huppin, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim. The sons of Naphtali, Jazil, Guni, Jezer, Shilam. These are the sons of Billah, who Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter. And these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. And this is God's word for us here today. Friends, if you've ever read the story of Joseph, you know that there are essentially two essential 
theological points that the story of Joseph, which runs from Genesis 47 to Genesis 50, two theological truths that helps us to understand the story of God. Now, if you've grown up in the church, you know the story of Joseph, and in fact, you may know the story of Abraham. So in middle school or perhaps in elementary school, we sing that song, Father Abraham has many sons, many sons has Father Abraham. One of his sons is grandsons is going to be Jacob. Jacob had his favorite son, Joseph. But the story of Joseph shows us two things. One, it shows us how the people of God, the Israelites, ended up in a pagan nation, Egypt. That sets up the book of Exodus and the story of Moses. Moses goes to Egypt, leads his people out through the captivity of the Egyptians. They wander through the wilderness after passing through the Red Sea, eventually ending and landing in the promised land of Canaan. They get the Ten Commandments. Moses comes down. Some of us are very familiar with that story. The other aspect of theological truth that we see in the story of Joseph is how does God fulfill his promise to Father Abraham back in Genesis 12? And in Genesis 12, God said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. He said, Abraham, you're going to have many sons as numerous as the stars. You're going to be a great nation. And through you, I'm going to bless the world. And the story of Joseph, when we come to Genesis 46, begins a picture that shows us how God fulfills our promise. It shows us how God, in the land of Egypt, begins to show Abraham, years and generations later, how he will become a father of many nations, then many children, and how through his family he'll begin to bless the nations, the family of God. And friends, if you are part of this church, if you are a believer in Jesus, one of the realities that you have to come to grips with is that you are part of God's family and part of CCSC, of this local family. One of the few and weird things about Christianity is that we think oftentimes once you become Christian, then all of a sudden all the relational problems go away because the gospel says there's grace, there's forgiveness, there's love, but once you become part of the church, you realize that sometimes family and relationships are even harder. And if you're a believer here, and I pray that you are, and if you're not a believer, well, this is what the family looks like for you, something that the world can't offer. And I want to consider the messiness of this family, because if you are honest with yourself, you're a messy person. You have sin, you have blackness, you have brokenness. You have a lot of skeletons in your closet that you don't want people to know. You judge people, you criticize people, you're insecure. And if you are honest, you are a messy person with a messy story, And if you're part of this family, you have a messy family and other people are messed up. So you have a group of people coming together with messy relationships. But what the gospel says in Genesis 46 is that this messy family is a mess worth making. And I want to talk with you about why that is. And we're going to look at the family of God from three perspectives as shown to us in this family tree. One, we're going to look at the formation of this family How does God make this family who is all broken and messy? Secondly, we're going to look at the faces of this family, specific people in the genealogy, and why are they included in the family of God with all their brokenness and their messiness? And then third, a couple applications, we'll look at the function of the family. So we'll look at the formation of the family, the faces of it, and then end with a couple of practical applications, the function of the family. So let's look at the faces, or rather the formation of this family. We didn't read these verses, but I'm going to read them for us. It's Genesis 46, verses 1 to 4. This is the introduction of this chapter. Let me read this for us. This is what Moses, who wrote this book, says. 
Starting with verse 1, so Israel, which is another name for Jacob, Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. Then he said, I am the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now, what's happening here is that Jacob is really old. He's maybe about 110 years old, and he finds out that his favorite son, Joseph, who he thought was dead for about 20 years, he finds out, my favorite son is alive. And so he takes his entire family from the promised land of Canaan and goes back to Egypt because that's where Joseph is. And he says, I want to see my son. But what does Jacob do? He's a pit stop. And he stops by this city called Beersheba, which is right on the borderline of Canaan and Egypt. And he has a worship service. And in verses 1 to 4, God makes these promises and says, I will be with you when you go into the foreign land, Egypt, and I will bring you back out. And you're going to see your favorite son. And what Jacob does is that he begins a worship service to honor God. And it's a remarkable scene because if you're a missionary's kid, pastor's kid, maybe you've grown up in the church, sometimes you move away. And when you go back to your childhood church in town, sometimes there's something really nostalgic about that. You're saying, this is where my dad used to worship. This is where my dad used to preach God's Bible. He stood up there on that pew. He stood up there on that pulpit. He's right there. He used to pass out the sacrament at this church. That's essentially what we have here when Jacob stops and he worships in Beersheba. And that's my point. How does God form his family? Well, first, he does it out of grace and love, but he forms his family through worship. That's your identity here as a family of God, first and foremost, is that you are a worshiper. Worship comes from the old English word, worth-ship. That whatever you deem is worthy, you show acclamation, praise. Whatever you think is worthy... You worship with your energy and your time. And Jacob here takes time to worship. He's excited. Now, I don't know if you're parents here today, but if you imagine that your kid comes back from school, or if you go from a long day of work and you come back home, you can't wait to see your kids, or at least I hope you do. I can't wait to see my kid. You miss them. Your kid goes to college or goes to a retreat or maybe goes on some summer camp. You can't wait to see your kid. That's only maybe a day, a week, or two weeks. Jacob here hasn't seen his favorite son, Joseph, for about two decades. And he can't wait to go back and see his kid. But what does Jacob do? He says, I'm going to worship the God of my father here at Beersheba. I'm going to see where my dad, Isaac, used to worship. As excited as Jacob is, he takes a break to show the priority that my family will be a worshiping family. Now, he has about 70 people with him. You could imagine the other kids, Dad, why are we doing this? Why are we stopping here? Shouldn't we hurry? Joseph wants to see you. Don't you miss your favorite son? Are we excited to see Joseph? Why did we stop? And Jacob tells us God forms his family through worship, and we're stopping Because Jacob is a worshiper. Worshippers worship. One commentator said it this way. They don't worship because the bell rings. They don't worship because the trumpet sounds. They don't worship because someone stands up in the prayer tower and says, now it's time to turn east. The kind of worshipers that the Father seeks are those who worship in spirit and truth. That's the kind of worshiper that Jacob was for his family. 
This puts family into its proper place as a practical application. That family is formed through worship. Worship catapults Jacob and the family into the land of Egypt. And so as a practical application, friends, it's easy maybe for me to say this. I will say just as a contemporary application, worship will always take a priority over your family. Now, you can't dichotomize, say, well, one is worship, two is family. You could worship God through your family. But one of the things that we could be practical about here is that there should be a priority in your life and mine to worship every Sunday with your local church. Now, there's exceptions there. You know, if you're a policeman, fireman, a doctor, sometimes you miss church, you can go on vacation. But if you are a family, then there's a priority that you worship locally with your church here. And I'm talking about one of the greatest countercultural movements that we could show the world in our worship is, again, something such as children's sports. That as good as children's sports is, as away games are, as tournaments are, there's a priority in the family to say, I want my child to succeed, I love my kid, but I'm going to take a moment to say my family will be catapulted and formed in the context of worship committed every Sunday as best as I can to worshiping at my local church. Because the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks are not the ones where the bell rings and you begin to worship, or there's a guy in the tower that that rings the bell and says, now it's time to turn east. But worshipers are those who worship in spirit and truth, and you take a priority to say, my family will be forged and formed in the context of worship. That's a priority there. Think of it, friends. Jacob, when he worships here, if you know the story, will be the last worship service in his promised land, Canaan. The next time the people of God will worship in Beersheba will be about 400 to 500 years later when Moses leads the people of Israel out from the captivity of the Egyptians. 500 years later. Derek Kidner, an Old Testament commentator, says, The place and the character of Jacob's worship indicate his frame of mind, for Beersheba had been Isaac's chief center in addressing God as a God of his father. And he was acknowledging the family calling and implicitly seeking leave to move out of Canaan. Israel is on the brink of becoming a nation. They enter into Egypt as a dysfunctional family of 70, riding on caravans and donkeys. But years later, they will come out as a multitude of generations, a powerful nation ready to be forged in Canaan. And how does God form this family? As a dysfunctional family of 70, Worshiping God, that will lead to a powerful nation of Israel, multitude of generations later. Humble beginnings, big endings. That's how your family is formed. God cares about the big and the small. He cares about the dysfunctional 70. He cares about the magnificent thousands and multitudes of generations in the nation of Israel. That's how God forms his family, in love, in grace, in worship. And this leads us to our second point. Let's take a look at some of the faces. This will be the bulk of our message. I want to look at with you specific stories and people in this genealogy. And I pray that when you see faces in this genealogy, you will see your reflection. You will see a reflection back to you of how messy you actually are. It's funny when you actually look at a reflection of your spiritual condition or any reflection that you have. Both physically, you look in the mirror, say your hair is messed up, there's no, there's gunk in your eye. There's a dirty face. You've got to wash yourself. Mirrors reflect the true state of who you are. Now, every Friday at my church, 
my staff and I, we've been playing basketball in my church. There's a basketball hoop. Every Friday at 4 o'clock with three of the other guys on my staff, we play horse. And we come up with the nastiest and the most ridiculous kind of shots. And I know that age 42, I can no longer do what little I could do when I was age 25. So rather than actually being able to perform shots that have a lot of skill, I try to come up with shots that are a little bit creative. And so one of the shots I've been trying for about a month is what I call the cartwheel shot. So I'll throw this basketball up, I'll do a cartwheel, I try to catch the ball in the air, and I just do a simple shot. been trying for like four weeks. I finally got it. And so I had one of my staff members, I said, record this, put this on TikTok, show this on your Instagram story, you're about to see something amazing. And I thought when I threw the ball and I did this cartwheel, it was like Olympic gymnastics. I thought it was a sleek, smooth cartwheel catching the ball, looking like LeBron James and shooting the ball. When I saw the video, it was the most ridiculous and nastiest cartwheel that I'd ever seen. It basically seems like I was jumping from one spot to the other. But that's what reflections do. That's what you look at yourself, you can see the true spiritual condition of what you are. And that's what I want to look at here in this genealogy, friends. And this is what I want to say. Genealogies are a bunch of names. There's stories behind names. There's history. It's not just a designation. There's a reality. There's a story. They invoke emotion. Names can inspire, but they can also make you angry. So, for example, if I just say the name Kobe Bryant, many of you will have a response. There's a story. He was part of L.A., He was L.A., in fact. People were heartbroken. People were taken aback. They were uncertain. They didn't know what to do. If I say the name Trump, there are going to be a lot of strong, different reactions to the name Trump because names carry stories. They're not just designations. They're stories. There's realities here. And I want to look at the faces of this genealogy because there's a story. There's a story about broken people with all the messiness that we bring coming together as a family. Now, if you read verse 27, the end of our passage, it says this, all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Now, numbers, according to Jewish theology, are really significant. Actually, not even Jewish theology. You could read Revelations. You could read all throughout the Bible. Numbers are important. And to the Jewish mindset, seven is an important number because it's the number of perfection. So seven and multiples of seven are really important. There's a clean slate, new humanity, perfection. There's a wholeness to it. So when it says in verse 20 that Jacob's family begins in worship at 70, it says this is a family of perfection. It's the ideal, complete number. Genesis chapter 10, if you've grown up in the church, is the story of Noah God judged the world for its wickedness, flooded the world, except Noah and his family. Noah comes out of this boat. He worships God. In Genesis 10, it lists the generations that flowed out from Noah. There are 70 nations and new humanity. That's what the Bible is trying to tell us. Seven is a number of perfection. So friends, let's do a little bit of math here to show you what God's point is. Rachel, in verse 22, had 14 descendants. Perfection, seven times two. Billah has seven descendants in verse 25. Number of perfection. Together, that's 21, which is three times seven. Leah and Zilpah, when you take their descendants together, they form actually 49 descendants, which is seven times seven. Gad, who is the seventh son, 
his name, his numbers, numerically speaking from Jewish numerology, his name Gad, the consonants add up to seven. So seven is peppered throughout this passage, friends. It's to say, when God forms his people in the faces of it, it is a family of perfection. It is the highlight of God's family. That's what he's trying to tell us. Seventy is a perfect family, a new nation, a new humanity. The character of these names show that God in his grace makes a family in perfection, uniting them in Jesus Christ. And here are some of the faces, friends. Uh, I want you to imagine in your head as we go through this, basically a family tree. And we're just going to look at family trees and we're going to look at names here. And it's important to note this, that in Jewish culture, it was perfectly acceptable to manipulate and manufacture your family tree. It was culturally allowable. And what they would do is to present the best family tree they could. So they would black out any black spots. They would leave out people who had deep sin. They would leave out, leave out people who were orphans or had an adulterous relationship. Automatically in a patriarchal society, Jewish people would never put women into their genealogy or children. It was only men of stature, men of accomplishment, men of power. So they manipulated, manufactured their family tree. Friends, you and I can relate to this. This is how we can relate. We do some version of this too. If you ever send a Christmas card December and you send it out to your friends, you put up a picture-perfect image of your family if you're married with kids. Beautiful family, all dressed up, color-coordinated. You write a nice little letter. On the back of the card, you send it out. And I know that you project the best picture, but you want to black out any of the difficulties in the past year, all the tragedies, all the hurts, and the brokenness. In social media, when you put a picture, you only put the best on your social media. On Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, whatever it is for you. Snapchat, you only put up wonderful restaurants that you attend, foods that look really great, funny moments and relationships that you have community. You put pictures of momentous occasions in the years of your life. You never put up the moments on your social media, the black spot. This is my deepest sin. This is a brokenness that I've had. And I don't want anybody to know this. You never put that up on your social media. You never put out an argument that you have with your wife. You never put up difficulty with your, your kid and your child. You don't celebrate your failures. You don't celebrate your disappointments. It's only the image to say, I have a wonderful life. Functionally, sometimes I wonder if you and I, as reformed, quote unquote, as we are, we're functionally like health and wealth Christians, that the Christian life is one that's beautiful and perfect in all its ways. But that's not what the genealogy of Jacob is like. That's not what God shows us. He puts in, in his genealogy the people that the world rejected, the black spots that you and I will always be embarrassed about. Let me try to make my case here. I can't go through everyone, but I'm going to just spot check a couple of faces in this tree. Now, first, we can look at the sons of Leah. If you know the story of Jacob, Rachel, and Leah, you realize that Jacob had two wives, but his heart was with Rachel. Rachel was beautiful in Jacob's eyes. Leah was sort of the second choice wife. Jacob was tricked into marrying Leah. Leah had a difficult and hard life, and she loved her husband and so desperately wanted his affection. Her identity was in the acceptance of Jacob. So what she would do is to have a lot of sons, because if you have a lot of sons, then you bring a lot of clout to Jewish culture. And she thinks, if I have a lot of sons for Jacob, he'll start loving me rather than Rachel, who struggled with being barren and having infertility. So this is what she does. She has her first son, Reuben. 
His name literally means see a son. And it means theologically, it means the meaning of that name is to say, God, do you see the son? Do you see how much I'm being oppressed and how broken I am? Jacob, do you see I got you a son? Can you love me more? But Jacob still loved Rachel more than Leah. So Leah has a second son, Simeon. Simeon means the Lord has heard. Lord has heard her affliction, her oppression, her suffering. So basically, she names her sons to reflect her experience. Reuben, can God, can you see how much I'm hurting? Then says, Simeon, God, can you hear how much I'm suffering? Jacob still loves Rachel more than her, so she has a third son, Levi. Levi means attached or joined, which basically means I'm going to attach my hopes and my life to my husband. And says, Jacob, can you see that I love you more than anything in this world? If we had time, this would be a perfect spot to talk about the idolatry of marriage and relationships, that your deepest functional savior, your deepest foundational reality, is going to be from love in relationship from someone else. That was going to be Leah. And then she has her fourth son. His name was Judah. And there's a turning point here. Judah means hope or praise. And it may mean that Ashley finally, after having four sons, that Leah says, my hope and dreams will no longer be tied to acceptance in my husband, but as a child of God to say, I should be happy to have four sons. In fact, if you know the genealogy, Judah is a son where there's a slight turning point spiritually. Judah is the tribe or the genealogy from which Jesus will come from. That's going to be Judah. That's what we see here. But this is the point for you and me. Leah is a sad character. She is known to be second place. None of you strive to be second place. She wants to be accepted and loved by her husband. She was probably jealous of Rachel, who is beautiful in Jacob's eyes. And this is our point in application. Friends, many of you so desperately want to be Rachel. You want to be the most beautiful. You want to be promoted. You want to have clout. You want to have respect. You so desperately want to be number one. But when you wake up in the morning, the reality is, is that you realize you're Leah. You feel like second place. You feel like the person who's put to the side and not acknowledged and not known. You feel like you want to be the number one Rachel, but you wake up realizing you're Leah. And that's hard for us. You wanted to get into a certain school and you don't get in there. You wanted to love someone and get married, but that person doesn't love you back. Many times we strive to be the best, but oftentimes we find that we are actually second place. But in God's eyes, he places Leah first in the genealogy. He takes those who the world rejects and says, you're number two, you're second fiddle. And he says, you are going to be number one. You have the most number of descendants. You are placed in my genealogy. You have significance, not actually in marriage and love and accomplishments of this world, but you have significance because... You're engrafted into my genealogy as a family. That's you and me. We oftentimes are Leah. We are not number one. We're second place. But what other faces do we see here? Not just Leah in second place, but let's look down this family tree. In verse 10, there's this guy named Ohad. Now, if you don't know the name or meaning of Ohad, neither do I. And I'll tell you, neither do the commentators. And that's exactly the point. Ohad, his name has no meaning. He's actually an unknown person. In the parallel list of this genealogy, Numbers 26 and 1 Chronicles 4, the parallel lists don't even list Ohad in the parallel genealogies. 
Now, it's confusing because there's no meaning to his name. He's not in the parallel list, which means that either he had no descendants, which means he had no significance, or if he had descendants, they all died out. But this is the point. To the world, Ohad is a nobody. He's unseen. But to God, Ohad is placed in the family tree. You may feel like an Ohad. You walk into this church, you feel like no one sees me. No one acknowledges me. You may be struggling with loneliness. You may be wanting to celebrate accomplishments in your life, but you have no one to celebrate with. You may need somebody to pray for you, and you're mourning, but there's no one to empathize with you. You feel completely unknown and unseen, not heard and not recognized. And sometimes what brings the greatest healing in this life is that for lonely people and struggling people, you just need to be seen, need to be understood. And Ohad shows us that the nobodies of this world are fully seen in God's grace because Ohad is engrafted in verse 10 into this genealogy. He's part of God's family. Also in verse 10, there's this guy named Shaul. Now, what's interesting about Shaul is that it lists there that he's a son of a Canaanite woman. I don't know why he has that designation, but I think it might mean that Shaul is a mixed, mixed race, mixed ethnicity. No, even in the land of Canaan, the promised land, it may say that Shaul is the son of a Canaanite woman because it means that he actually has different ethnicities. If we had time, we could unpack this, but I think it means this. It means that even in Jewish culture and pagan cultures during that time, they didn't want mixed people. It was sort of a pride in one's nationality, ethnicity. You have to marry your own. You have to stay Jewish. You have to stay your particular ethnicity and culture. And if you're mixed, that means you're automatically rejected. No one wanted mixed genders, or rather mixed ethnicities back then, mixed cultures. Shaul is placed in here because he says, the world will reject somebody who's considered a mixed breed, but in my family, he's engrafted in. This tells us implicitly at least a couple of things, how heinous of a sin racism is, how important racial reconciliation is. It's an indication later on of the Great Commission because the commission of the gospel doesn't go just to Jewish people, but it also goes out to the Gentiles. He embraces diversity and culture and ethnicities all across the world. That's why in Revelation it says every tribe and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is beautiful because in Shaul, it shows us that God's family accepts and embraces what the world actually rejects. And if I stretch out the application, this means this. Shaul represents that the people who may have broken marriages, people who have, uh, maybe they're adopted, people who are maybe coming from a broken parents, whose parents were divorced, single mothers, dad left. You may feel that the world shuns you. You want to hide that. There are skeletons in your closet. You want to not reveal this because it's too vulnerable. You come from a family that doesn't have the greatest family tree. But in God's grace, he says those who are mixed ethnicity from broken families, they are the people that I want to show in the book of eternity in my family tree. That is what God shows us. He shows us that those people who feel that culturally they are not belonging perfectly fit into my genealogy. And this leads us to our last person that we'll consider. There's so many more faces, but the last face that we'll spend our time with here today is going to be in verse 15. Let me read verse 15. There's this woman named Dina. 
It says there, verse 15, These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Paddan Aram, together with his daughter Dina, altogether his sons and his daughters, number 33. Now, why is this so important and remarkable? And I'm going to spend some time a little bit talking about Dina and show you why this is important for our family. Because Dina represents to us, if you know her story back in Genesis 34, she represents a woman, one of the daughters of Jacob, but she represents actually someone who's victimized, someone who's been traumatized, someone who's been objectified, someone who's been utilized. If you know that story, she was somebody that was victimized in the most brutal and most physical and sexual of ways. She was used as a commodity to barter a transaction between men in different nations and clans. She was used by different people. She was almost not given a voice. And I don't have the time nor necessarily the expertise to speak into this, but I'll say this because the Bible does. What she shows us is actually people who experience a lot of shame. One counselor by the name of Ed Welch has said this, when it comes to shame, especially when it comes to people who are victimized in shame, Secular psychology seems to be light years ahead in their analysis and their understanding of the human impact and experience of shame. But you and I, we experience shame all the time. That's why even they say Asian cultures are shame-based cultures. But I think all cultures experience a level of shame. There's all kinds of shame. There's simple shame where you could be embarrassed because, for example, you may be singing in your car at a red light and you're singing at the top of your lungs and all of a sudden there's another car that pulls up and they're just watching you. And you don't realize that, and you look over and you kind of stop because you're embarrassed and you're ashamed. You can be ashamed because everyone knows that you're trying to get into a certain college, or that you're trying to get into grad school, or you're up for a promotion, and you didn't get it, so you feel ashamed. Maybe you feel ashamed because you simply just made a mistake, and there's an experience of shame here. And perhaps the most detrimental and tragic experience of shame is when you've been victimized. They're not all exactly the same. Because not all experiences of shame is a result of sin. Sometimes you're ashamed because you did sin. You broke God's law. But sometimes you just make a mistake and you failed. But that doesn't mean that you actually sinned. It just means that we're finite and we're human and we're going to make mistakes in the side of the world. So there's not guilt there. There's no sin there. But we still experience shame. The most traumatic is actually when you're a victim. And the problem with this is that the victim has done nothing wrong. Like Dina. She's done nothing wrong. She's been used, objectified, utilized, traumatized. But unfortunately, the world works in such a way that when you're victimized, she experiences potentially deep shame because she feels dirty. She feels what the Bible calls being unclean. This is a reality that you can, can relate to. The Bible uses this metaphor and says, when you and I feel shame, the experience that it wants us to understand is that we feel dirty. That's why in the Bible, there's all kinds of laws called the clean laws, saying that if you sin or that you have natural bodily functions or that you've been victimized, no matter what, the Bible says in a book like Leviticus, you're unclean, you're dirty, you're black, you feel icky and yucky inside. And in that law, back in the Old Testament, you're kicked out from the community of God's people. But that may capture your experience in mind. I feel unworthy. I feel embarrassed. I feel dirty. I feel ashamed of myself. I feel like it's my fault. I feel guilt-ridden even though it wasn't my sin. 
And that's why in the Bible, you see this wonderful picture of how there's a battle between clean and unclean. And Ed Welch brings this out brilliantly. And he says, when you look at the battle between clean and unclean, at least in the Old Testament, whenever clean and unclean come into contact, unclean always wins. Dirtiness always wins. So that if I'm unclean and I touch a clean person, that clean person becomes unclean. If I'm unclean and I sit in a chair, that chair becomes unclean. And if another clean person sits in that chair, that clean person becomes unclean. That teaches us about holiness. It shows us about our need to be forgiven, the cleansing blood of Jesus. But we see over and over again, clean and unclean come into contact and unclean always wins. For generations, for centuries, until years later, there's a guy that comes onto the scene and his name is Jesus. And in Mark chapter 5, we have a wonderful picture because there's this woman who's been unclean by culture. She's bleeding for 12 years. She's ceremonially unclean. She's culturally unclean. She's ostracized. She's poor. She has no community. She's embarrassed of herself. She feels dirty, but she wants to be clean and have healing and restoration. So in Mark chapter 5, this woman who bleeds for 12 years reaches out in a crowd, which is already brave because everyone knows who she is, and by faith, she touches Jesus' garment. And for the first time in Mark 5, Jesus realizes power came out from him turns around to the woman, and for the first time, she's been made permanently clean. In other words, clean and unclean always have a battle where unclean wins until Jesus comes into the scene, and finally, for the first time, in the power and the grace and the love and the blood of Jesus, there could begin a process where this woman and you and I could begin a process of healing from our uncleanness, from our shame, from our dirtiness, Because for the first time in this woman's life, she is deemed clean, holy, part of God's community. That is going to be Dina. She is a woman that no one wants to be known and be part of, but God places her specifically in the genealogy. Ed Welch says this, and I quote, It seems unfair that both perpetrators and victims should be placed in the same category, but God is making a point. Both our actions and our associations make us unclean. That doesn't mean the unclean are unwelcomed, but it means God must do something in order to make this unclean person clean so the person can enter into his presence. Unclean is not the same as sin. It can come from our own sin, but also just contact with something sinful. The unclean might be guilty, but they always experience shame. But Dina for the first time, can be engrafted into the family tree like you and I can. And friends, I don't know your story. I don't know your background. But I'm going to guarantee, like I think every church has, there are some of you that have been tragically and unfortunately victimized in small and big ways. And more than how my heart and the pastoral staff's heart goes out to you, God's heart goes out to you in perfection and says, I know your dirtiness. I know how you feel. It's not your fault. You're not at guilt. It's not your sin. And he will walk you through the years of healing to say that you are actually clean in the blood of my son, Jesus Christ, for you. And miss all the details of the Mosaic cultural context that made Israel's people unclean was this idea that people say, if you are unclean, something is wrong with you. I don't fit in. I'm not like other people. 
I'm not normal. I stick out and I'm kicked out. But Dina shows us that in God's family, we can embrace and accept one another. In fact, if you count the number of 70, the number of perfection, Dina is required. She's actually needed to complete the number 70. Without Dina, it's only 69. So this person that the world rejects and feels embarrassed about is the, world, is the person that God completes the perfection of his family in 70. And this means this, friends. In the genealogy, there are major actors and there are minor actors. There are major role players and there are minor role players. There are famous names like Leah, who are second place. There are nobodies like Ohad. There are victimized people like Dina. And we see here that all these people, in God's eyes, have a place in his new family of perfection in 70. And friends, this is my point. If you believe in Jesus, you are also engrafted into the family of God. You are also part of his family. And spiritually, your name is part of the 70. And I wonder if you were in this name, in this genealogy, what story would follow with all the brokenness in your life? And would you see that God has covered that brokenness for you and me? Would you see actually that God has covered you in his grace and his purpose and plan for you? Because you belong to the 70. And lastly, but quickly, let's go through a couple applications One, if this is true and this is God's family, that means not only do you have the humility to come to God, but it also means that you should have the grace and love to accept one another. All of us are broken. All of us have a place in this tree. We should be utterly gracious and kind and have intimate protection and intimacy for one another because we're all broken. This represents all of us. And these are a couple of applications that we could run through. One, according to one commentator by the name of Bruce Walke, he says that we should be a vastly countercultural community of hospitality. Now you're thinking, that's kind of a stretch, but this is all about hospitality. Jacob goes to, goes to the pagan nation of Egypt. He's shown hospitality by Pharaoh and his son Joseph. But hospitality is an application. And this is what one commentator says by the name of Kerr. Jay Kerr says, hospitality is not about serving food and drink to one another, but hospitality is about being food and drink for one another, that you yourself are giving your heart. It's about enlarging ourselves just as we enlarge and extend our tables to fit another guest to eat. It's about enlarging our lives. In other words, hospitality is not about opening up your home. It's about opening up your heart. You let people not into the table of your home, but into the recesses of your life. Henry Nguyen has says the concept of hospitality is one of the richest concepts to deepen our insight in the relationship with our fellow human beings. It may offer a new dimension to our understanding of the healing relationship and the formation of recreating a community in Jesus. Hospitality without the inner stretching of the heart becomes that inferior product called entertainment, which is necessary, but it's not the same as hospitality. So one application for a church like ECCSC is how hospitable are you to one another? Do you allow room not for people not just at your dinner table, but also in your heart, in your lives, in the brokenness and messiness that God brings us through? And lastly, but not least, there's an application of evangelism here. Because whenever you talk to a non-Christian at the grocery store or at Starbucks or at Phil's Coffee, or anywhere that you kind of do errands and chores, whenever you come into contact with somebody that you don't know, be careful how you interact with them. 
Because you never know by your actions and words. You never know when you talk to a stranger. That stranger may be the next person that's engrafted into the genealogy of God through your interactions and love. And at the end of the day, what we find in the evangelistic fervor of God's people is that in verse 12, we see that there is these sons of Perez by the name of Hezron and Hamul. And the reason that these sons are listed in verse 12, which is the fourth generation, is because from Perez and Hezron and Hamul, through their genealogies, a guy that comes and is born in a manger and his name is Jesus. And Jesus Christ is the one who is the Lord over this family. He's your older brother. He's your savior. He's your king. He's the one that has cleansed you and engrafted you into the genealogy of Jesus Christ according to Matthew chapter 1. You are part of this family with all your brokenness and hurt and your messiness because Jesus Christ came into this world and he died a perfect death upon the cross. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God turned his back on his son, poured out his wrath and says, you're going to suffer the punishment for your people's sins, yours and mine. Jesus Christ for a moment experienced what it was like to be an orphan, kicked out of the family of God so that he could bring you and me into his family and grafting us into the genealogy so that we could be hospitable to one another, but also evangelistic as we engage the world out there. Let us turn to the Lord in prayer at this time. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for the grace that we received in your son. And Lord, many of us, all of us, in fact, will not know everyone in this room, not even each other's names, but even if we know each other's names, we don't know everybody's stories, everyone's hurts, aspirations, dreams, failures, disappointments. But Lord, in Jesus Christ, you can engraft each and one of us to each other because you have brought us in union to yourself. So let us be a family, God, with all the messiness that we have. May this community at CCSC be a community of acceptance, of grace, of love, of knowing that we're all on the same playing field in our brokenness and our hurts, and that we could come on the same playing field, prostrating ourselves before the cross, looking into Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior, who suffered what it's like to be an orphan, metaphorically, on the cross, so that we could be brought in and adopted as sons and daughters. Thank you that we could have a family and we could call you Father. We pray all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen.